Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all. This is session number three of Fundamental Beliefs of Conservative Friends, What We Are Conserving. Last time I brought up two topics. One was on the real meaning of the fear of God as well as a very basic understanding in friends' minds for generations between inward and outward dimensions of reality. And I'm saying reality because that includes not just our physical world universe, but uh, the spiritual world out there. That there are two dimensions of reality, or as friends would call it, truth, with a small t and a capital T. Uh, that they have always had in the back of their head. It's sort of like in their mindset. This is how they perceived and, and are perceiving everything. So that's why I'm trying to have you learn the mindset that is important for beginning to understand spiritual understandings, where they come from, how they fit into the world. I'm going to quote the Bible more often. And in one particular place here, I'd like to refer people to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. I'm going to change what's here, and I'm going to give a better translation of the Greek. And that is, think the same thought that was in Christ Jesus. What my translation here says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Well... Paul isn't just saying let, he's actually using a, a command. He's, it's in the imperative mood. Think the same thoughts that Jesus was thinking. Think like Jesus. At some point in the future, we may go through the passage that continues on through verse 11. But the point I want to make here is think like Jesus, and that's in terms of humility that he humbled himself, as it says in verse 7 and 8. He humbled himself. Humility is a very important word in the tradition of conservative friends, being humble like Christ Jesus was humble. It's this kind of mindset that I'm trying to focus on before we go into maybe more specific kinds of teachings, testimonies of friends, to have this kind of mindset, this frame of mind, this way of thinking that is so important in terms of really getting to have a clearer understanding of how you read the Bible, how you perceive God, how you perceive yourself. And I characterize it by these two words, inward and outward, as I did last week. I gave an example of some words that kind of indicate the distinction, uh, as I said last week, inward and outward uh, more often had, the, had a stationary, a location kind of meaning to it rather than a directional meaning. In modern English, we, we move inwards, we, we go in an inward direction or an outward direction. That wasn't the case as to how those two words were used in earlier English. And you see examples here, inward, inner, outer, interior, exterior, inside, outside, mental, physical. The outward is anything material, materialistic, matter, whereas the inward is spirit, mind, that kind of sense of uh, a non-physical reality. 
So, so often you're thinking of spirit when you're thinking of inward. And again, outward is more physical, more material. And very important is a distinction between the outward, the literal sense of something versus the spiritual, the allegorical, the mystical sense of, of a word or passages. As I was quoting Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The word grama in ancient Greek meant a letter of the alphabet, but it also meant anything written, a physical paper with some writing on it. And that's that kind of outward thing can kill, but it's the spirit behind the words that really can give life, eternal life to someone. And that's, again, this inward-outward kind of distinction that you see there. So it may seem emphasizing something that is pretty obvious, but making this part of the way you perceive the world is a not that easy kind of thing. At some point for myself, I just said, aha, I think I'm getting it. But having an outward knowledge of it is first there. But thinking in this way, in terms of inward, outward, inside, outside, physical versus spiritual, that may take some practice to make it more part of yourself. I'm going to be continuing to emphasize that because this comes up so often in terms of reading the Bible, the New Testament especially, and looking at, as a number of early friends said, you must seek the spiritual meaning, the spiritual signification of these words. There is the literal sense, but there's something behind them. Whether you accept the literal sense as being true or not, that varies. But it's the spiritual sense that may really matter in many cases. Okay, is that clear? I hope. One of these important words, these inward words, is the word within. And if you look at the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 17 verses 20 and 21. I'm going to change slightly one word here because it's the word used in my note rather than in the actual text that matters. It says here, once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for, in fact, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, so I'm going to use this kingdom of God as an example of looking at these things inwardly or outwardly. What the Pharisees were asking was an outward thing, the kingdom of God as being something outward, a social, a political kingdom. But then Jesus is answering them, saying, it's not coming with things that can be observed. They're not with outward physical signs. Nor will they say, look, here it is, something you can point to with your finger, or there it is. Rather, for the fact, for in fact, the kingdom of God is among you, is what I have in my translation, but the actual Greek word means within. It's a kind of sad point here in the last hundred years in English translations 
you, you're getting many of these other translations for a Greek word that just could mean inside or within. And there are reasons that has happened, various reasons. This Greek word means inside or within. You'll find translators today in the past hundred years in English translations wanting to translate it in other ways like among or within or in your reach. That word does not mean that. Even in modern Greek, it still means inside or within in modern Greek. One of the reasons this has happened is because various translators feel, how could Jesus be saying that the kingdom of God is inside these Pharisees who are out to get him arrested and executed? Well, no, there's a point here, but I want to make another point more important, and that is the word for kingdom here in Greek. This word, basileia, of course, the New Testament was written in Greek, Koine Greek, Biblical Greek. This word, basileia, can mean a, a kingdom, a social, a political kingdom, but more often it had a different meaning. It meant the realm, the domain, the dominion where a king was sovereign, so that it didn't refer to a country or a nation as such. And that's where you can look at this word having both an inward and an outward sense. The Pharisees are using this word in an outward sense, that kind of political kingdom, because they were looking for God's kingdom to be a political fact. This Messiah would kick out the Roman legions and they would become free of, of Rome. But Jesus was talking to them inwardly, and he has the sense of kingdom in an inward sense. We have the English word state, which actually it has both these meanings. You can talk about the various European states, France, Germany, Italy, but then you can also talk about a state of mind, a state of being, a state of consciousness. So in actuality, our sense, our word state is very similar to this Greek word that's used here. Because this state of God is within you. It, it doesn't mean that you, like even these Pharisees, are in contact with that state or even know that it exists. But it's what's being said here is that it's there. It may only be a seed. And that is an important word too that friends often use. It would be a seed within one that one can aspire to, that one should try to enter into. Any comments or questions on that so far? Henry, was the Roman Empire called a Basileia? It was Imperia in Latin. And I know that the emperor himself, Caesar, whoever he was, would designate who could be kings in the kingdoms that were controlled in that empire. And I can't say for sure, I don't think they would have called the whole empire Basileia. But I don't know. I don't recall ever seeing it as such. Because the, the word that would have been used there would have been the Latin word imperia. Because the emperor was emperor.
This is very important, this word, because I'm pointing out how a word can have both an inward and an outward sense. And the focus here of friends and their understanding, as in, as far as I can tell, all earlier translations and other languages that I'm aware of, Spanish, Russian, you name the language of Europe. And it's kind of sad because when you're translating it as among or some other term within the grasps of or, or something, you're losing what's really being said here. As I said, this word kingdom in the Greek more often did not refer to a political state. It referred to a state of mind more often. A field, you know, as a, we can think of it maybe in modern physics as a field of energy. This is the divine field of energy where God is. The whole focus of friends' worship, of having a particular behavior, conduct that is worthy of a Christian is to be able to enter into that field even before death. That's an important point. Now, let me go back. You have this word kingdom, which is also called the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the Lord, the kingdom, and the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Greek actually says it in a way that it's the kingdom of the heavens. The Greek word here also means skies, the kingdom of the skies. And if you can see there that if you're saying kingdom of heaven, you're not talking about something physical or outward, but you're just talking about something inward, spiritual, versus sky or skies. But this has led to a lot of bad theology, not knowing this original kind of distinction where this word heaven has kind of sep gotten separated from its original meaning here uh, in terms of kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a reason for that. The reason that you have this term kingdom of heaven is in the gospel according to Matthew. The writer of that gospel and the people he was writing to were observant Jews who were still hesitant to use the actual word for God, God. And they would replace it with the term heavens or skies, so the kingdom of the skies, the kingdom of the heavens. And that's where we get that term heaven is from that sense. But it was kind of a euphemism. They were still too hesitant to use the word in all contexts. To Even today among some Orthodox Jews, they'll just spell the word God in English as because they're just still hesitant to use G-O-D. And likewise, even in modern Hebrew, they won't use the word God too. They'll talk about the name. They'll speak of God as the name. Again, instead of saying God, they'll say Hashem, his name, rather than using the word God. Any questions so far? Comments? Okay, let's continue. I'm emphasizing this word because this is very important in terms of why we even have something called waiting worship. Because talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, of the Lord, the kingdom of the skies, the kingdom of heaven, is really an equivalent term for this word that so often is used in the gospel according to John, life and eternal life. 
throughout the writings of the gospel according to John, you'll find the word life and eternal life to be the equivalent of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Only in one chapter, in chapter 3 of the gospel according to John, do you have the term kingdom of God used. And it's used by Nicodemus. And that's the only place. Otherwise, the term that, you've, that John uses is life and eternal life. However, in the other gospels, like Matthew, you'll find all three terms used. Life, eternal life, and kingdom of heaven. But these are equivalent. These are equivalent understandings. There's an Indian story about, I think it was five blind men who touched an elephant and each came up with a different description of what they were touching. One of them touched its leg and said it was this. Another one was touching its trunk or body. And they, they were saying, well, it's this or that. But they were touching the same thing and their description was a little bit different. In a very similar way, these are the equivalent. There's a semi-equivalence here between saying life, eternal life, kingdom of God. And even this word eternal life, that expression is actually more literally life of the ages, eternal life. There is an understanding here that to enter into the kingdom of God, to enter and to have obtain eternal life, we're talking about the same thing. This is kind of basic, I think, in getting a true understanding of what Quaker worship is all about and just the lifestyle of a true Quaker should be and what was preached by the early friends. In another session, we will talk about this in terms of the meaning of the word repentance and repent for Quakers as well as early Christians. It was an essential word. It was the first thing you needed to do was to repent, but not in the sense of that you find so often today in terms of feeling sorry or feeling remorse for what one has done or has been doing. Uh, but we'll get into that in a different session. But even George Fox commented in his journal that in talking about early friends going out into London and elsewhere in pairs with Bibles in their hands, telling people to repent. Now, if I say repent to someone today, it doesn't mean the same thing, unfortunately, but we'll get into that, and that probably will be a whole session or more in some other future session, perhaps soon. Any comments? Please. I do have a question. Um, I read a contemporary author, and I'm sorry, I can't even remember the name of the book, but he talked about the use of inward light as conveying the sense of that searchlight coming into us to identify what in us needs to change. And that this author thought that expressed the early Quaker's idea of light rather than this little light of mine. Yes, that's, that's right. It's, it's the need to change, a dramatic change in one's whole mindset. That's why I was talking here earlier about the mindset, a whole change in the frame of mind that you have. You need to perceive your relationship with yourself, with your neighbor, with the world, with God in a very different way than you have, as well as this whole change, need, this real change in behavior, this conversion to God, which means literally a turning to God. That was the whole emphasis 
of so much of early friends preaching to others, this, this true repentance. Again, there's a lot to say about this, so I want to kind of leave that for another session. But Marilyn, yes, uh, he's correct about that. It's, it's sad that this word doesn't have that sense anymore, and this is what really the first step in what friends called convincement, which didn't mean convincement in the modern sense. It, it meant being convicted by God of something wrong in you that needs to be changed. There's this unrighteousness in you. You have to get off your pedestal, off your high horse, and realize who you are in relationship to God. And that, again, has to do with the fear of the Lord. Awesome, gobsmacking awe of God and you. I mean, even today in our modern society, we know so much more about the vastness of the universe and time than they did 400 years ago or 2,000 years ago. So we should even have a greater sense of this awareness of the difference between us, these little temporal creatures that may live 70, 80, 90, 100 years if we're lucky. But that's critical. Okay, let me go on. I want to read something. This is a passage that really moved me. It was in a preface to the works of Edward Burrow, an early friend who died very young in prison in his early 30s. And it was written by a friend of his, as well as a friend, Francis Howgill. They were both Quaker preachers, specifically, especially in the city of London, and really says something about the kingdom of God and their understanding and how they having gone through this repentance and this silent waiting worship, began to understand and to come into real contact with this kingdom of God, this eternal life, this divine life. So I'm going to read this passage. It's, a, it's an abbreviated passage. Also, to save time, I'll just modernize some of the language in it. But as I said, it's in the preface to uh, Edward Burroughs' works and written by Francis Haugill after the death of Edward Burrow. We were reckoned in the north part of England, specifically as the outcasts of Israel, and as men destitute of the great knowledge which some seem to enjoy. Yet there was more sincerity and true love among us in desires for the living, powerful presence of God than was among many in that day who ran into heaps and forms but left the cross behind them. God, out of his everlasting love, did appear to us, according to the desire of our hearts, we who longed for him. When we had turned aside from hireling shepherds' tents, we found him whom our souls loved. And God, out of his great love and great mercy, sent one to us, a man of God, one of 10,000. That's George Fox to instruct us in the way of God more perfectly, which testimony reached to all our consciences and entered into the inmost part of our hearts, which drove us to a narrow search and to a diligent inquisition concerning our state through the light of Christ Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, we found to be near at hand. And as we waited upon him in pure silence, our minds out of all things, his heavenly presence appeared in our assemblies when there was no language, tongue, nor speech from any creature. 
The kingdom of heaven did gather us and catch us all as in a net. And his heavenly power at one time drew many hundreds to land. We came to know a place to stand in and what to wait in. And the Lord appeared daily to us, to our astonishment, amazement, and great admiration, insomuch that we often said one unto another with great joy of heart, What? Is the kingdom of God come to be with men? And will he take up his tabernacle among the sons of men as he did of old? Shall we, who were reckoned as the outcasts of Israel, have this honor of glory communicated among us? We who were but men of small faculties and of little abilities in respect to many others as among men? And from that day forward, our hearts were knit to the Lord in one to another in true and fervent love in the covenant of life with God. And that was a strong obligation or bond upon all our spirits, which united us one to another. We met together in the unity of the spirit and of the bond of peace treading down under our feet all reasoning about religion. And holy resolutions were kindled in our hearts as a fire which the life kindled in us to serve the Lord while we had a being and existence. And mightily did the word of God grow among us, and the desires of many were for the name of the Lord. O happy day, O blessed day, the memory of which can never pass out of my mind. And thus the Lord, in short, did form us to be a people for his praise in our generation. That is the goal of becoming a Christian, a Quaker, a friend, this is the true goal, is to enter into this kingdom of God, this spiritual state. In a different session, we'll talk about the nature of worship, but people like the early friend Robert Barclay basically said what we're talking about is also known as contemplation, not meditation, contemplation. Now, contemplation is, is a higher level of that silent worship than just meditating on something. What is meant with contemplation, actually the, the Latin word contemplation <clears throat> uh, in Latin basically has the meaning of staring. If you're silencing your mind, silencing all the outward exterior physical sounds as best you can, you're staring. Now you can understand when someone like George Fox would say, mind the heavenly light, focus your mind on that spiritual light, that illumination that we call Christ, the anointed one, the anointing within us, the Messiah. You're trying to eliminate all other thoughts, cares, whatever, and to stare at that light of Christ, that inward light. But there'll be a lot more to say about that in another session. Any comments so far? Oh, also, again, inward and outward, if you look at 
the gospel according to John chapter 6 verse 15. This is right after the multiplication of the loaves of bread where Jesus fed the 5,000. And it says here in verse 15, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He ran away. They wanted to make him a, an outward, a political king because of a miracle there. He would have nothing to do with that. We're talking about an inward kind of Messiah, the inward light of Christ that was in Jesus. So that entering into this kingdom of God, as I've been indicating, is to do two things. One is basically taking up this inward cross of Christ. This is an important point in the understanding of early friends, that we need to do two things, taking up this inward cross of Christ. And what is the cross? What does the cross do? It executes things. And what are we executing? We're executing all those parts of us that are out of alignment with God. It means being in obedience to the will of God, discerning that will and then doing it. So that you need that change in behavior, that repentance that we will talk about later, as well as in waiting worship, waiting upon the Lord to learn his will, to obey him, and to seek that kingdom within, even if it's temporarily. Because friends do not believe that eternal life or the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, was something that the kingdom of heaven was something that was to be after life. We should strive for it before. And that people can reach it. And as long as we're on the road and thinking of, of doing it, of trying to get to that kingdom, that is, that is a, that's approved by the Lord. And I believe it's in Romans where Paul says, the kingdom of God is neither food nor drink, but righteousness peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. Again, an inward kind of thing that we're talking about. An inward reality, a spiritual reality versus a physical, material kind of reality, the world out there. I'm seeing it's getting late. Oh, I'm surprised there's so much to talk about <laughs> on this topic still, inward, outward. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And likewise, in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, uh, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. And it's the sense of the cross, taking up the cross, that is a distinguishing feature of the teachings and beliefs of traditional friends, conservative friends. In the 19th century, it may have been in 1887 at Richmond, where a Quaker who was upset with the changes going on in part of Quakerism at that time said something to the effect about the cross of Christ being lost. And others had said that also in terms of the more conservative friends understanding this need for this inward cross. What does a cross do? A cross executes someone. Okay, now I, I see we only got a few minutes left, but I just want to 
bring this up and maybe we could talk more about it next time. And let's just go to Matthew 16, 24. This verse occurs in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. It says here, Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you must not deny, that's not the correct translation here. You must reject yourself, your ego. The word self is an old Christian word uh, meaning ego. You must reject your ego, your own personal ego with all its arrogance and whatnot and take up your cross. You must execute everything that goes along with that arrogant ego of yours. All your addictions to various kinds of sins and whatnot and then become a follower of mine. And this is, again, this occurs in all three of these Gospels in slight variations. This is critical, and friends refer to these passages, these specific uh, verses, quite often in their writings. And this was, again, something, unfortunately, you just get misunderstandings. People feel, all oh, these little crosses we must bear during our days today. No, no, no. A cross was a form of execution, a terrible form. You were to execute all these addictive impulses, desires, cravings, you name it. Then come follow Jesus. You can't become a disciple and you will not be worthy of him if you don't. And this is a true teaching. And this has to do again with what does this mean? It means becoming humble in a true sense. This is pure righteousness that we're seeking in ourselves, being upright in our conduct is, conduct is upright in the eyes of God. And I looked up this phrase, kingdom of God. It occurs more than 150 times in the New Testament. And I do want to say a bit more. I won't have time now as to this need for repentance and it's the first thing that Jesus goes out and tells people to do is to repent because the kingdom of God is one that is near. Actually, it's within you. So any comments, further discussion? Henry, will you have a session on the, on the cross at some point? Yes, I think we need to talk about repentance. It's kind of hard for me. I've been trying hard to think of how to sequence these things. And repentance is sort of number one here and taking up the inward cross of Christ. You know, in reading early friends' writings, there are certain assumptions that are already made there so they don't talk about these things because it's already assumed that you've taken up the cross of Christ if you've become a friend in spirit, true spirit. There's no copyright on the term Quaker or friend. There's no copyright on the term Christian. Anybody can call themselves that, but God knows who the true Quakers are. God knows who the true friends are. God knows who the true Christians are. He looks inwardly inside you, in your heart, in your consciousness, in your conscience, how you are acting, how you are trying to change yourself. That's what matters. Henry, I have a quick question. When we talk about feeling convicted by, by God that first time that you come into contact and realize how completely worthless we all are. Is that the same as the day of visitation? 
you're talking about some of the very similar things. Yes. Yeah. Again, you can reject that. That yes, might be um, a sin against the Holy Spirit, perhaps. Yes, I mean, William Penn wrote in his preface to George Fox's journal, which came out around 1694, after the death of Fox, that there are three steps. The first step is convincement, meaning conviction, being, you know, realizing you're, you're guilty of sin. <laughs> Get off your high horse. Your ego is too much there. That, if you follow it, you won't, you'll be depressed at that point because the light of Christ, this is the first appearance of Christ in you, of this anointing within, the Messiah within, is to show you what's wrong. And then, again, if you stick with it, it will change, it will lead you, it will convert you. Conversion literally means turning. You turn to God, and then that becomes no longer a God convicting you or Christ convicting you but it leads you to his love. And finally, that will lead to an amendment in one's life. So those are the three parts, as William Penn explains it there in that preface, to what we would call repentance, or the Greek word is metanoia, metanoia in Greek. But there's a lot to talk about that. That's, um, I didn't realize we had so much to say about inward outward. So our topics may go beyond uh, just one session, but I'm trying to get at least some of the very basic stuff out to you guys now about what was there. And some of the stuff is sort of, I'm trying to read between the lines when I'm reading early friends' writings and traditional journals, whatever, to see what they're already assuming, but we can't assume because we need to get into their heads in a sense, in terms of the, the Lord leading us in that direction, even if we're not aware of this history of this movement towards God. Of course, God is trying to do this with everyone throughout the world at all times, even before the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Anyone else? It's hard for me to guess, is it helping uh, you to get a better sense of what is the true faith, what is the light of Christ. I just have a lot of things in my mind right now, but I don't want to go on for another two hours. But I could see how Fox and these other preachers would preach for several hours, all day long and into the night. Even someone like the Apostle Paul would be, you know, speaking into the middle of the night or whatever, and people falling out of windows or whatever, just <laughs> falling asleep. So, uh, um, I hope this is helpful to, yes, to you. Yes. Um, yes, very helpful. I'm using also my own background in being able to read the original Greek of the New Testament and also my own religious history. I thank God that I'm not an atheist, which I could have become given some of the things that have happened to me in my history with God. Anyway, okay, I'd like to thank you all. Hopefully, I will see you all again in uh, three weeks. And if there are others who you feel might be interested, please uh, inform them or, or email me, and I'll send that information to you all, okay? Thank so, you. Thank you, Henry. All right, Thank thanks. You. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, friends. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you, Henry. Okay, fine. Thanks, friends. Take care. Thank you all. God bless. Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all.
This podcast on the fundamentals of Conservative Friends Understandings has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Chip Thomas. The words to our music are from Robert Barclay, quoted from his work, The Apology for the True Christian Divinity. The words were put to music and sung by Paulette Meyer. Paulette's CDs are available at paulettemeyer.com.